0: Most of you know I am not Scott, but I'm here to introduce Scott. Um, But before I uh, do that, um, just a couple of things, Um, you know, this morning as we celebrate, uh, Palm Sunday, uh, depending on what uh, um, church background you have, uh, you this may or may not have been a big deal for you. For me, Palm Sunday was always a big deal. Uh, it was something that I always looked forward to, uh, partially because in the frozen tundra of upstate New York, it marked the beginning of spring, um, but it was just uh, also the realization that this is a very special week. And here at at New Life, we want to acknowledge that. We don't want to just jump from Palm Sunday to Easter without remembering the events in between and that's what this week's about. Uh, we hope that during your time of prayer and fasting this week that you'll be in Scripture, that you'll be looking at some of these events and ask God to speak to your heart uh, in, in all of this and how you should respond to it. And, uh, of course, one of the things that we do uh, here to help us with this is to have that Holy Thursday service. And if you've never been to a Holy Thursday service here, you're going to want to come. You're, you're not going to want to miss it. If you're watching online, be here. It's at seven o'clock on Thursday. There's no sermon, but there's a lot of scripture. We're going to have a number of people reading scripture, and in between the scripture readings will be songs that will fit the text that we just read. We'll also celebrate the Lord's table together, but it's designed to help us to remember those events that led up to his crucifixion and include his crucifixion, so that comes Sunday morning we've got a real reason to celebrate. And so another thing that we do uh, is right in front of me here, and that is we set up uh, the cross, and uh, we drape the cross in cloth throughout the week, and we exchange the colors. So you, you want to pay attention to this. You want to help your children understand the significance of the colors that you see uh, draped on the cross. Purple, of course, representing uh, that of royalty, And we're speaking of the King of Kings coming into Jerusalem this morning on that first Palm Sunday. But it's going to be exchanged during the week. Uh, And that'll happen on Thursday. It'll happen again on Sunday. And you'll want to make note of that. And then also the candle that you see that's lit represents the life of Christ. You know, John told us in his gospel that in him was life and the life was the light of men. Jesus is the light of the world. And so all of this is designed to help us to appreciate the events of this week and the great sacrifice of the cross and the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And we're so glad to have with us this morning Scott Bruns, who is the executive director of uh, Scioto Hills Christian Camp and Retreat Center, Uh, Scott is a longtime friend, and uh, we are so glad to have him back again this year. He spoke last year with us, and it's just perfect timing. It's right before our men's retreat, so maybe you can plug that a little bit as you come forward. But he has graciously uh, agreed to continue in our study of the book of John. And so, um, uh, Scott and Pam, we're so glad to have you. Come on up and uh, bring us the word, brother.
1: Thank you good to be here with you folks, and uh, we love going to church, and Pam and I are usually in a different church every Sunday. Uh, Easter, we'll get to go to our church, and Pam's looking forward to that because otherwise she has to hear me speak all the time, which is not always a good thing. Um, Forty-three years in May, uh, we will be celebrating uh, our marriage, and 43 years of working with kids, and that's why we have white hair, just so you know that. I do want to give you a, a, just a quick uh, camp update, and uh, I don't have any pictures today, but uh, just got some thoughts to share with you about Silent Hills, uh, some of it, uh, it may be new to you, but first of all, I just want to say that we know that New Life loves Silent Hills Christian Camp, and we appreciate your prayers and uh, your contributions to the ministry, and then also supporting uh, what we do. Uh, We love uh, the camp setting, and we just say that the camp setting works. And we can talk to you more about that, but there's something to say about getting away from where you do life to coming to a place that's a little different than your normal life, and... Having an opportunity then to think about the big things of life, right we call it a counterculture because uh, it 's a culture that doesn 't exist uh, you know anywhere else, and so we 'd love to uh, have you be part of that uh, a yeah, men 's retreat is coming up and twenty uh, second and twenty third uh, J- uh, Jer- uh, Jeremy Kimball, one of the professors at cedarville, is one of our favorite speakers at camp he 'll be our our main speaker but i 'll just tell you man we have one of the the All Star NBA All Star game this year honored the top 75 basketball players in the in the entire history of the NBA. We have one of those guys coming Friday night to share his testimony, and I'll just tell you it's not LeBron. So, um, but that's a cool little secret. Food's great. We'll have a great time. Got our workshops uh, coming together. Uh, I'm going to do one this year. Instead of how to make brats, we're going to do one on gardening and got other things going. So we'd love to invite you uh, to that. And you need to be registered by this Friday uh, so that we can plan for that. Um, The other thing, too, is we are... You know, looking forward to other things that we're having in the summer. Uh, And I'll tell you about that in just a second. But I just want to say, secondly, that God has been faithful. So New Life Loves Silent Hills. God has been faithful to Silent Hills. And during these last two years, with uh, uh, you guys heard of this little virus going around, we have down there. Kids call it the Rona. Uh, You got the Rona um, down there. But uh, we, just so you know, in way of earned income in the last two years, we lost almost $800,000 of earned income, and on an annual budget, that's around $900,000. So we lost... You know, just you know, about half of our earned income. But I just want to say God's been faithful to us. We never missed a paycheck. We never had to lay anybody off. Um, we always had more money in the, in the checkbook than we uh, anticipated, kind of like Elisha and the widow and the oils and the vats and all that stuff. And uh, I, every time I went to the checkbook, there was always more money there than I anticipated. How many of you know that's what it's like in your own house, right? But uh, uh, so the Lord has just been faithful to us during this time, and I could tell you all kinds of reasons why. But the main thing is, is we have a rich history of people who've been impacted by the camp, and there are churches that I didn't even know existed, and folks that I didn't even know attended camp that have contributed to the camp. And in those two years, while we lost eight hundred thousand, we had about six hundred thousand in gifts. And just amazing things. So praise the Lord for that. Uh, we're excited because we are now going back to what we're calling our normal summer camp, right? We're having kids camps. We didn't do that the last two years. I just want to encourage you to uh, consider uh, sending your kids to camp. We've got brochures out here in the foyer. And then one of the special elements of our summer ministry is family camp. I already talked to someone today, said they're coming to family camp, and we're doing three weeks of that, and yeah, it's not the Hilton, but uh, it's camp, and it's, it'll be the best vacation you ever take as a family, and I think you'll love that, and it's like one price, and uh, um, I tell people uh, that, you know, if they don't enjoy their week, if it's the worst week they've ever had, I'll give you your money back, and you can go to Disney till the cows come home, and Mickey's not going to give you a refund right? But uh, I don't think we'll have to do that. So you check that out. Then here's the biggest thing we need to have you pray about and have you consider and help us with. Uh, Because we didn't do kids camps the last two years... We did not hire summer staff. We normally hire 50 to 55 college and high school students to help us run, you know, have a 1,000 people at summer camp um, or so, 1,200, whatever that is, and uh, they help us do camp. And the biggest part of it is is that we hire college students to be trained and be our counselors in the cabins. And because we lost two years of momentum, it's been very difficult for us to recruit and to get that uh, taken care of and so uh, if you are 18 to 25 and uh, you love the Lord and you have a desire to see what God can do in your life you're not quite sure how that's going to play out yeah you may have career in mind or whatever um, but uh, if you're interested in that you think you love kids you'll come and find out if you love kids but uh, if that's you then you ought to consider joining our summer staff this year I'm convinced that if you take a break from your summer job uh, or your job, if you, if you show up on time and do your job, they're going to rehire you. I, I'll just tell you that. So uh, if, we'd love to talk to you more about that, if that's the case. So pray about that. If you know folks, if you know someone that fits that category, send them our way, and uh, we would love to, to have them consider spending the summer with us. It really is our ministry behind the ministry uh, at the camp. All right, if you have more questions about camp, you can come see us afterwards. Right now, I want to invite you to find John chapter 6, if you will. John chapter 6, a familiar story, Um, the feeding of the 5,000 so cool to be thinking about how this connects to uh, Christ moving toward uh, his triumphal entry and the Last Supper and the cross and the resurrection and how the book of John brings us through all that. And the book of John is trying to teach us that Jesus is God, right? And uh, it proves over and over again for us that he is. Uh, the title of the message, Jesus Test His Students' Faith. So Jesus is going to test his students or his disciples here. And uh, the theme that I'm trying to get across, folks, today is that how does this story about bread apply to us? How does it apply to us? So I want to ask you a question here as we start. What is the one thing in your life that you believe that God can get you through, yet you struggle to trust him that he's going to do it? What's the one thing in your life that you believe God can get you through, and yet you're still struggling? You're wrestling to trust him to do that. Maybe it's family issues or the future. Uh, maybe it's health or employment, uh, a conflict with a friend. Maybe it's your marriage. For me, it is always camp finances. And the crazy thing, as you just heard, God has always been faithful. To us, I don't worry about our personal finances. Uh, I worry about the camp's finances and it drives Pam crazy, right? Why don't you care about our finances? You're always concerned about the camp, you know. I, oh, yeah, she worries about that. I'll worry about the other one, right? <laughs> The point is this, I believe there is a wonderful application woven into the familiarity of John chapter 6 that can be a great encouragement to us today as we face those day-to-day routines of life, as we face those struggles, those difficulties that we're facing, and we wrestle with whether or not God is going to handle uh, those for us. I was excited when Pastor Paul invited me to speak on this text. But as I developed the story here the feeding of the 5,000, I was led to take it a slightly little different direction in, uh, by incorporating Mark's account of the feeding of the 4,000 as well. And if you'll bear with me and be patient, we'll figure out how this uh, uh, relates to each other. So we'll get started here, and hopefully when I'm done, you'll understand my theme, this idea, how does the story about bread apply to me? Let's talk about the setting a little bit here. In chapter 6, verse 1, the first phrase simply says, after this, and so we ask, after what? Public ministry of Christ started at the age of 30, and Jesus spent three years teaching one thing. If you don't get anything else from that, Jesus taught for three years trying to get across one point, and it's this. Trust me. The reason we can trust him is because of what he claims and how he proved to be God himself. Trust me. Uh, we have at the camp what we call trust falls. We use this idea when we um, we have our high ropes courses because they're fun. We have a, a 40-foot wall that you climb, harness you in, and we zip you over 650 feet, right? Uh, we have a giant swing. We harness you in, and you swing out over the one pond about 80 feet off the ground, and we have some other things that way. But we use those to teach the concept of faith, And we love the idea that we say that faith is putting the full weight of your life in Christ. Putting the full weight of your life in Christ. When you're harnessed in and you're standing at the edge of a 40-foot wall and you're going to step off of that ledge, you're putting the full weight of your life in the harness and the rope. Otherwise, you're in trouble if it doesn't hold you, right? So we talk about faith or belief or trust. We're talking about making a decision to put the full weight of our life in Christ. Every element of our life, not just our sin issue, which is obviously the biggest one, but our day-to-day routine, our future, our family, our, what's gonna happen to us after we pass. We're putting the full weight of our life in Christ. After this, John says, it didn't take long uh, for Jesus to draw a a crowd. Everywhere he went, people followed him. After this, what else had happened just now? John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, had just been beheaded. I think Jesus, it says here, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, um, and I think it's because he was mourning the death of his cousin. He went away. Uh, from the crowds. But he couldn't get away from the crowds. He had already performed miracles, enough miracles to convince his audience, especially his closest friends, that he was who he said he was. He was God. So... John 6 here is telling us that some things are going to happen after these other things happen. But I want you to see, too, that his disciples experienced the greatest display of who Jesus really was. They had front row seats. This is important as we look at this faith test that Jesus is going to put his students through. He made enough statements about himself and his miracles to create an uproar among the religious leaders as well, right? And he's always got this conflict. And if you look back in chapter 5, verse 18, he just finishes healing someone, and uh, the religious leaders are, uh, can't stand what's going on. And he says this in 18, uh, verse 18, John says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making him equal with God. So while he was growing these crowds because of the miracles and things, and while his, he's demonstrating the disciples enough evidence to that they can trust him, he also has this rising animosity with the religious leaders uh, to attack him, and they seek to try to kill him. So chapter 5 ends with this idea that the religious leaders are um, not doing well. Jesus says, in fact, um, you are not following me because you didn't even follow Moses. And Moses condemns you. I don't have to condemn you because Moses actually spoke of me, Jesus says. And the religious leaders weren't getting that. I want you to notice too, and by the way, Three years of ministry, public ministry, 43 years for Pam and I. If, if in God's plan, Jesus would have spent any more time on the earth, the crowds would have been so massive that it would have created an incredible problem for the Roman government and for people. Now, he would have had to feed hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people with some fish and bread. So in God's perfect design, three years was enough, right? It's Interesting. I want you to notice, though, and just as we continue to look in way of introduction here, this is not a story about a little boy and his lunch. The emphasis that we had sometimes in Sunday school misleads kids to think that this was a story about a nice little boy who helped out Jesus. It misled me as a kid. This is a story about the master teacher testing his students. Luke chapter 6 says, "When Jesus says, when a student is finished, he'll be like his teacher. He begins to think like and behave like his teacher. But ultimately, this is a story of Christ's ability to meet every need, especially our spiritual needs. This is a story that cries out to me, when am I going to trust Christ once and for all? So we call this the faith test, if you will. So John chapter 6, verses 1 through 14 give us the first faith test. I want you to keep in mind that definition of faith, right, of putting the full weight of your life in Christ, saying, I trust you, Christ, enough to put the full weight of my life in you. So let's read the passage here, and then we'll make some comments from it. So after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. You see, when when you study this, you look at the Sea of Galilee and Jesus is constantly going back and forth to all these different uh, city ports or town ports and all of their activity and their food and all that was connected to the Sea of Galilee and there's a series of towns around there and he's constantly getting in a boat, going back and forth with or without his disciples and regardless of where he goes, the crowds follow him. Jesus, verse 3, Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing the large crowd and, and uh, was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said, to, he said this to test him, for he, Jesus himself, knew what he would do. Philip answered, 200 denaria, or a year's wages wouldn't be enough to feed uh, these people so that each one would have a little bit. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, uh, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. Not just a little, but they got their tummies filled. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered up, up, them up and filled 12 baskets with uh, fragments. The word baskets here is the word for a beggar's basket, so it's not a large one. It will show you a difference in Mark. Uh, so they, they gathered up uh, fragments with the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into uh, the world. Here's the faith test pattern. So we're talking about the first test that Jesus gives us and gives his disciples is there's a pattern with it. It's this idea, accept what you can't do. Accept what you can't do. Trust what Jesus can do and obey what we can do. When he went away, I think it was to try to get uh, to mourn John a little bit, but I want you to picture three things here, right? Jesus and his disciples going back and forth to the different ports, seaports all over the place. He couldn't escape the crowds. He was so popular, it was because of him performing his miracles, right? Some needed healing. Uh, Some uh, we're looking for a show, for something else. Some were looking for a free meal. Others were waiting for him to mess up the religious leaders, right? Most wanted to simply see another sign, and they really didn't believe what he was claiming yet. It's interesting in John chapter 2, verse 24, that Jesus had these crowds even by then. And it says, John says that he didn't entrust himself to those people because he knew their hearts. Our pastor called it unsaved believers. They were followers and they believed some things, but they really weren't truly converted. They weren't trusting him for what he claimed to be and what they needed. So the dialogue begins then. So we accept what we can't do. So all these people that need to be fed. And Jesus says, where are we going to get enough bread to feed all these people? By the way, probably over 20,000. And I'll just tell you this, so there's 5,000. How do they know that they sit there? Well, there's a tradition from Deuteronomy 8 that when they were in big masses, they actually sat in groups of 50 or 100. And they would do that by men, and then they would do their meal or their feast or whatever, and depending on the size of their group, actually 10, 50, 100, 500, they would say different prayers in association with that number of people. And so, uh, in fact, Mark tells us uh, earlier on that they were divided in the 50s and 100s, and it's because of that tradition, most likely. That's why they knew there were 500 men. As a kid, we thought Jesus was feeding 500 people, but it was 500 men, and so probably uh, there are other people there, and probably, most likely, uh, 20,000 people were fed. Except what we can't do. Where can we get enough bread to feed all these people? It would take a year's wages to do that. They couldn't do it. But believe what Jesus can do. Verse 6 says that Jesus asked that knowing that he was going to do it already, and he did it to test them. He wanted them to trust him. He wanted them to put the full weight of their life in him. Philip failed the test a year's salary couldn't buy it where are we gonna uh, oh oh, jesus you could no he never said that we can't do this it's impossible they failed andrew simon's brother failed the test in verses eight and nine Uh, a little boy here has a lunch but what good is that gonna do us right and see i don't think the boy offered. i think they took the lunch quite frankly So we accept what we can't, we believe what Jesus can do, and we do what we can do. Jesus in verse 10 tells them to sit down. Oh, that's something we can do. And they help distribute the bread. Trust and obey. So they have this pattern that takes place. Then you have the faith test is proven. He, he makes his point. Verses 11 through 14, he breaks the bread. He feel, fills the baskets. They have enough to where they're fully satisfied, not just a little bit. You, know, you Just think about the crowd. Where, where's this bread coming from? I don't know. We're getting it from up front. But the story's not finished because he wants them to understand why he did it, right? And we're not going to take a great deal of time, but the rest of chapter 6 helps us understand uh, in, in this idea that, that he is the bread of life. He did it to make a purpose. There was a, a mission or an intention behind the miracle, and so we have the faith test explained. And it's this. When Jesus created physical bread, it was simply a metaphor for something much greater, that he could satisfy spiritual hunger, Jesus is the spiritual bread that they needed. And uh, if we looked at chapter 6 and and following there, we just pick it up in verse uh, 35 because there's been this dialogue back and forth where you can have bread, but you need the bread that will give you eternal life. And so in verse uh, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I'm the living water, he says as well in the gospel. But I say this to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So the big picture that Jesus is trying to get across to them is he feeds them physically so that they would understand the analogy of the relationship that they've got this hunger in their heart right? Blessed are those who hunger after righteousness in his Sermon on the Mount. He wants them to understand that he can meet their spiritual need. He's basically saying, I've shown you that I have power not just to feed you for one day, but I have the power to take care of your life. Trust me. But the story's not finished there. So we want to go back to verse 15. Uh, You get this little transitional text in here. Verse 15, "'Perceiving then that they were about to come "'and take him by force to make him king, "'Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself.'" The other text, the other gospels, and it's good to compare them, says here that Jesus sent the disciples away in a boat to the other side. Jesus goes in a mount, up to a mountain, and he tries to get away. They go to the other side. So verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had towed about three or four miles, they uh, saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. And he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land on which they were going. When you study this in context of the other uh, gospels, then you find out that this is the story where he stands up and he tells the winds and the waves to stop, and they do. This is also the story where uh, Peter says, if this is you, let me come out, and he walks on water for a little bit. And then Jesus grabs him, takes him into the boat, and this one, this text tells us that Immediately they were on the shore. The winds and waves stopped. They didn't have to row anymore. Boom! They're there. And the crowds were wondering, "What? How? Jesus, you were what? and what? What?" This is just overwhelming, right? And now we're going to transition. I want to take you to Mark chapter 8 to continue the story. But if you're in Mark chapter 6, you would find that this account uh, tells us about Peter and, and uh, um, uh, actually the Matthew account tells us about Peter. But here you have the feeding of the 5,000, chapter 6, verse 45. They're in the boat. The winds and the waves come. And in verse... Uh, 48, it says that when Jesus walked on the water, he meant to pass by them. That's an interesting thing. When Moses was in the cleft of the rock, and he asked God to show himself, to him, God hides him in the rock, turn your face to me, I'm going to pass by you, uh, and that's going to change your life. And you get the Passover feast, right, in Egypt, before that, where the death angel passed by them. You get this idea from this little element of the story that Jesus intended to pass by them. He wanted them to see that he was their solution, that he was their solution to life, that he was their Passover. And a pretty interesting play on words. So the faith test continues. You should have see two things in this transition. First of all, that uh, he told nature what to do. Wouldn't you like to have that power? You were telling us you guys went to Amish country and you had all four seasons and like one day, right, rain, snow, wind, cold, sunshine. Man, I go outside sometimes, we have groups there and I just like put my hands up. God, we need some sun, right? I can't make it happen like that, but Jesus did, right? He's the one that made it. He made the waves. He made the wind. He had control over that. The other thing to just remember is instantly the boat was on shore. How did that thing happen, right? It's just another evidence to the disciples that God was going to do what he could do. He's going to show that he uh, and prove that he was God. So here's the second faith test. So we got to remember the faith pattern, right? Accept what I can't do, trust what Jesus can do, and obey what I can do. There's more miracles that happen in between uh, the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. There are more crowds. There's more traveling back and forth on different sides of the sea, and there are more critics. Chapter 7 starts out with that, questioning him healing somebody on the Sabbath, how ridiculous for religious leaders to not rejoice that this lame person is now walking. Instead, they're criticizing them for healing somebody on the Sabbath. How ridiculous. But that's what religious people do. They whine and complain about stuff that doesn't agree with them. Shame on us if that's us. So let's look here. I'll just make some comments, and you're going to see how this pattern unfolds again. Now, this time it's four thousand people. It says so. It's not five thousand men. It's four thousand people. In those days, in what days? Days where the crowds were growing, days where they were traveling, days where the religious leaders were attacking him and criticizing him more. When again a a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd. You will always see that from Christ's heart. I would highly recommend that you read a book called Gentle and Lowly. We're giving away four copies at the men's retreat. When Jesus describes himself, the only time that he describes what he's like, he says, I'm gentle and lowly. And he says, come to me because my burden is light. He always has compassion on Folks. So I have compassion on the crowds because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from afar. And his disciples answer him. They fail the test again, right? How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? How can anybody take care of that? Well, it's interesting that Mark uses the the number one. How can one? I I know one who can, don't you? He just did it. But the disciples here, it's not just, it's just not Philip and Andrew. It's all of them. How in the world are we going to feed these people? They failed the test again. How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he answered them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven. Now, uh, Mark chapter 6 talks about the feeding of the 5,000. John doesn't mention the feeding of the 4,000. There's only a little bit of time, I think, according to the text. um, I haven't fully researched it. But I'm wondering if the seven loaves that the disciples had were left over from the feeding of the 5,000. Now, they gave some to the priest. That was a tradition that they gave 4% or so of the food to the priest. And I just wonder if the loaves that they have were left over. It's only been, according to this text, he goes to a place of Tyre, which is about 25 miles away. That's a two-day walk for them. It's a 20-day walk for us, right? And then he comes back. He stays there a day or so, comes back. And so it's possible that it's less than two weeks Maybe a week between the feeding of the five and the feeding of the four thousand. So I think maybe the bread that they have is left over. Where are we going to get? Who can, who, uh, who can do this? <laughs> Duh, right? It's nuts. They failed to, t- to test. And so where are we now? So, uh, verse 6, and they directed, and he, Jesus, directed the crowd to sit down. Guess who did it? The disciples. So they couldn't do, they couldn't feed. That Jesus can feed. Jesus can do it. And then what can we do? We can do what he asks us to do. He's never going to give us anything we can't handle. Uh, He gives us stuff we can accomplish. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he, sat, uh, he said that these also should be uh, set before them. And they ate and were fully satisfied. They were filled. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And when he sent them away, and immediately got into the boat with his disciples, and they went to the district of Del- uh, Malnutha. So he does it again, Right? He's verifying that he's who he says he is. So he proves the test is, is worthy. Trust me. Obey me. I can do this. So now here's the final lesson. Y'all still with me? A little bit? Good. This next sec- section of Scripture is my reason for, reason for bringing Mark into the picture. It provides for us the ultimate Significance of the bread miracles. It really, in my opinion, is the climax of the story. Let me just read, starting in verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, not because they were really interested, but the text says to test him. And he sighs deeply in his spirit. He's going to deny their demands. John chapter 8, John chapter 10, talks about them not believing. The, the, they're, my sheep hear my voice and they know me. But you, he says to the Pharisees, you will never hear my voice because you're not my sheep. There's this constant rub between them them hanging on to their works salvation, them hanging on the fact that they have to get Jesus out of the picture because he's claiming to be the one the Old Testament talked about. And all the stuff that they knew, all the readings, all the memorization they do, and they still miss the point. But our main emphasis isn't on them. Our main emphasis is for us and for his disciples. So the blind religious leaders demanded more proof, and he gives them this uh, deep sigh, and then Jesus asked them a question. Weren't, weren't you guys usually about faith, and now you're always about sight? Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. I'm not going to give you any more signs. Now he did, but for them, they weren't going to get it no matter what. And actually in, another, in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, except for the sign of Jonah in the belly of the fish for three nights, and then out of the ground, out of the belly of the fish for three days. He's going to deal with that and help them understand uh, that more intensely. And so it then says he left, and he got in the boat again and went to the other side, going back and forth. So you have these blind religious uh, leaders demanding more proof, but they're not going to get more proof. Then Jesus, while they're in the boat, instructs his disciples in verse 14 and 15. Here, this is overwhelming. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. And um, they only had one loaf with them in the boat, I think, left over from the feeding And he cautioned them. Jesus cautioned the disciples in this boat saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What Jesus is trying to help them understand is that yeast influences what you put it with. And when you mix leaven or yeast in the, with bread, the bread is influenced and it rises. When you put a little leaven, it leavens the whole lump, he says, right? It grows. Watch out for these religious leaders who are involved with ceremonial pride. Watch out for those that claim that they're better than others. And watch out for the hypocrisy of King Herod who had just killed John the Baptist a few weeks earlier. King Herod was a Jew. King Herod claimed to be a, but he was a hypocrite. He wore the mask. He played the game. And Jesus is trying to give them a spiritual lesson, right? And listen, what did they say here? They'd forgotten bread. Watch out. In verse 16, they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Evidently, they were thinking Jesus must have been saying something about not bringing enough bread with them. They only had one loaf, so they start dispute Andrew, I thought you were and and, and John, why didn't you bring it john's i I thought Thomas was going Thomas Peter weren't you gonna how stupid? So Jesus here instructs his disciples. He then uh, makes his point with them because they once again fail to get it. There's probably four times here. They fail the test of trust. So look how it finishes here and will be done. They began, verse 16, dis- discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that we have no bread? This is more intense. All right, he's raising his level as an instructor. I do it as a coach, I've been coaching soccer for years. There's times when I'm gentle, and there's times, why aren't you getting this? Right? So look at what he does here. Why, aren't you dis- why are you discussing the fact that we have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Don't you get it? Are your hearts hardened? Interesting. Because if you'll just look back, and my Bible, just look at the other page, verse 52 of chapter 6. It says, they got in the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astonished. Why? For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. It means there that their hearts were rendered stupid. That's, a, that's an okay word. Proverbs 12.1 says if you reject wisdom, you're stupid. Right? Get in trouble for calling people that. That's what it means here. So, you know, you got that old saying, uh, fool me once, it's to my shame, fool me, uh, fool, it's your shame, fool me twice, it is my shame. So let's just adjust it. Fool me the first time, and I'm stupid. Fool me the second time, and I'm stupider. How's that one? They were not getting the lesson. So then he asked them a few questions here. Having eyes, do you not see? He just healed a blind man. Don't you see what's going on? I've got this thing. Trust me. He says, having ears, do you do not hear? And uh, in chapter, this chapter in Mark, he's going to heal a deaf man. I'm, I'm, I think I got him backwards. Yeah, the deaf man is chapter 7. Chapter 8 is the blind man. But he had healed... Many, many. Chapter 6 says everybody that came to him, he healed. And I know there were blind people. I know there were deaf people. People couldn't speak. People couldn't walk, right? He says, don't you get it? You have eyes, but you don't see, having ears, you don't hear? Do you not remember? So here he goes. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of uh, pieces did we have left over? And they say 12. It's like the little sheepish answer, I think. And in the, seven, uh, uh, for the, in the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did we take up? Seven. And he says to them, don't you get it? Don't, do you not understand? It's not about bread. It's never been about bread. This is not a story about a little boy. This is not a story about feeding 24,000 people. This is not a story about bread. It's not about bread. It's about believing who Jesus says he is and trusting him and saying that he can do what he says he can do. He's saying, I'm God. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. I have the power, Jesus says, I have the power to feed 4,000 people with a few fish. I could have done it without any fish. Trust me. I have the ability to walk on water, and I have the ability to tell the winds and the waves to stop because I'm the one who made the waves and the water and the wind. Trust me. I have the ability to heal people to show that I can heal the sick and raise them from the dead because I have the ability to heal your spiritual sickness. Trust me. I'm the one the Old Testament was talking about. I'm the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. I am the eternal life that you need. Trust me. That's the big point that is unfolding Don't you get it? It's not about bread. And seeing the story in light of this with a new set of eyes is changing my life because I'm learning myself to trust him. So let me just say in conclusion, be encouraged. But not understanding God's favor and grace in your life is equal to not remembering it at all. This week would be a great week to think back on the graces that God has shown you over your lifetime. That's why Jerry Bridges says, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Don't forget, don't forget. We need to learn from the example of the disciples that God has provided uh, for us in the past and we have confidence that he will continue to do so in the present and in the future as well. Trust and obey, the old hymn says, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey Christ's, powerful, uh, Christ's power is inexhaustible. We, we have to recognize that. Christ's purpose will be accomplished in you. He who began a good work, you will complete it, Philippians 1 says. And let me just say, be encouraged. Christ has your back. Trust him, obey him, believe him. He'll never leave you, Hebrews says. So by placing the full weight of your life in Christ, you can confidently trust him with the little things in your life as well as those big things that may threaten you. So what are you going to do as a result of the struggle that you have right now? What are you going to do with that thing that you think God can handle but you're struggling to trust him to take care of? What am I going to do with the camp finances I need to listen to my own words. I need to listen to God's word. I need to trust God that all the power that uh, he has is capable of caring for our camp and capable about caring for you as well, right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for the text that you've given us that helps us live life. It develops our worldview, our heart and our mind and what we pursue. Thank you for those disciples that were just like us. And thank you for Christ and the plan of redemption that provides for our every need. And I just pray that you'll help us, help us to see that this story is not about bread. It's a story about just learning to trust you more. Thank you, in your son's name we pray, amen.